Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers part 4 of his sermon titled, What Wondrous Love Is This? last meeting, you know that there's still some, just some uncertainties uh, with the escalating materials costs and these kinds of things. So I, w- I want to ask if you would do this, please. If you um, care about this church and certainly hope that you do as you pray for the church and you've got a number of things you're already praying for and quite frankly have greater weight than what I'm about to ask you. But if you would add this, please, I want to ask you to pray that the Lord would direct us in wisdom and he would provide. Please pray many other things for this church family, but please pray that in this building project, the Lord would um, uh, direct us in wisdom and provide for us. Uh, One more thing uh, to note is uh, a week from today, next Sunday, uh, after the service, if if you're a parent and you have children in the church, please stick around. Um, there's uh, some information we want to pass along uh, just kind of about the way that children's Bible study and the nursery works and some things to try to make this more orderly, um, keep the kids as safe as we can, some of those things. So if, if you've got a parent involved, if you are a parent and have kids involved in that, uh, we'll have maybe a 10, 15 minute meeting after the service next Sunday for that. We'll pass some of those things along. So just know that. All right. Let's turn our attention to the Word of God. Romans 8, and let's begin in verse 31, this uh, final section of chapter 8. Please read along. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come and we bow ourselves down. We want to exalt you to the highest place. We want to lift your praises where you belong, O God. We worship you. But Lord, we know we don't worship you to to the great depths that we should and that we want to. We love you but we don't love you as vastly as we know we should and as we want to and same with obedience. And Lord, we ask that you will come. So we, we are a group of 
sons and daughters bought by the blood of Christ. We're coming to you, our father, and saying, we want your name to be exalted. We want to love you more, worship you more, obey you. We want to be transformed so that our lives please you. So we ask, please come and do these things. Please, our God, come, give us your spirit, shine light on your words so that we understand the greatness of these truths. We'll see your glory, worship you more wholeheartedly and be transformed. I, I pray God that you will conform our thinking to the thinking of Christ. You'll transform our lives to look like Christ. And then specifically with some of the application that we're going to meditate on of being ready for death, of seeing death rightly. Lord, I ask, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. Give us your grace, O God, so that we can comprehend these truths. And I'm praying that the, what we consider this morning will change us for eternity. That for the rest of our days, there is a courage, there is a preparedness for death, that is there for the rest of our days and carries us through, oh God. So please bring these things. Help me, Lord, in my work to be useful. Help us, Lord, as we hear and receive and worship. Please, for the glory of your name, we ask it through Christ. Amen. A young man grew up in a Christian home uh, by parents who were earnestly devoted to the Lord. He was raised in the instruction of the Lord. He was given every encouragement to believe the gospel and follow Christ, but he rejected the gospel. As he came of age, he went off to Brown University. And when he got there on the campus, uh, he encountered for the first time in his life a, a society of atheists. Um, at the time, the new hit movement there was uh, what was called the French infidelity, and it was sexy, it was cool, everybody thought they were hip about it, and this was flooding the youth, and he was persuaded to become an atheist himself. He built some deep friendships founded on their common atheism. He immediately began to live a kind of reckless life. And he and his buddies would assure themselves they had no need to worry themselves with morality or thinking about consequences. Their friend group uh, had a leader. The one who was always prodding and instigating, the one who anytime one of them had an affliction of conscience was always the first one to make fun of them and to embolden them in their atheism. The ringleader of the group was a young guy by the name of Eames and was constantly mocking and making them feel ashamed anytime they wanted to do the right thing. Well, one year at college, this young man decided to uh, take a trip. You might think of it as kind of like a spring break party trip. He went off to New York City and spent some time there living the nightlife and living his reckless debauchery kind of life and partying and such and constantly assuring himself there's no consequences, nothing to worry about. He decided that he would take off towards the West. Now, this is the early 19th century to give you a, a little bit of perspective there. So on horseback, he takes off towards the West and decides to tour some states that he's never seen before. He states away from college, states away from his home living this reckless life. And one night on this trip, he stops in for some lodging. He comes to the front desk to request a room. And the clerk working says, I'm, I'm sorry, but we only have one room left. 
And it's right next to the room of a, a man who lays dying. Well, our young man that we're talking of, he replied, I'll take the room. Death has no terrors for me. I'm an atheist. He took the room and tried to get some sleep, but the commotion that was going on in the next room kept him awake through the night. At first, it was just the constant in and out and footsteps of people and doctors who were tending to this dying man. But then later he began to hear the groans of the dying man. The man was dying in terror. The man in the next room was in agony and was groaning about his agony, but it was not just the agony of the physical condition that was killing him. It was the agony that the man was terrified to die. Well, our young man we're thinking of, he lay there in his bed and he thought, you know, some, someone should go in there to, to comfort him. And so for a moment he considered going into the room, but he thought, what in the world would I say? And even as he thought of it, a, a cold shiver entered his heart. A man is dying in just the next room over. Even as he felt the cold shiver, he grew a bit embarrassed because he and his atheist friends, they had had these long conversations and they concluded that it was weak and shameful to fear death because they believed their atheism emboldened them. And he thought to himself, I'm, I'm glad my friends aren't here to see me now and especially Eames. But no matter how much he tried to shake it, he just couldn't get rid of the icy fear in his heart. He pulled the covers over his head and tried to go to sleep, but he still continued to hear the groans and the gasp. And in the early morning hours, while it was still dark, the room went silent. Well, now he really couldn't sleep. The man in the next room, a man died in the room next to me. The next morning, the young man inquired at the front desk about the about the dying man. And the clerk said, oh yes, he, he passed last night. And this young man asked about him and said, well, you know, who, who was he? What was his story? And the clerk said, a young man from Brown University out East. Our young man said, Brown, Brown University, that, that's where I go. What, what was his name? Perhaps I know him. And the clerk responded, young man by the name of Eames. Jacob Eames from Brown University, it, in that moment, it was like someone stabbed his heart with an ice pick. The very college friend who had shepherded his and a number of other souls into atheism had died and died crying out in terror. Fear gripped this young man like he had never known possible. He spent the next hours processing what he had just heard. And he finally came to a conclusion. He mounted his horse and began the very long trek home and where he had a great deal of time to think on the way. When he got home, he rushed in to his father and mother that he had quarreled with, that he had mocked because of their stupidity of believing the gospel. And he rushed in and asked them if they would help him to believe. And he decided, even before he was a Christian, he decided that he would devote his life to serving God. That young man's name was Adoniram Judson. 
Now, as I say that name, I, I hope you recognize it. I have told some stories in the past about him, mostly though about his sufferings. Adoniram Judson, if you're not familiar with the name, please get familiar. Uh, lots of these missionary biographies that we need to read. Adoniram Judson became one of the greatest missionaries. I mean, at least we'll say of the last four centuries, but I think we could say one of the greatest missionaries of Christian history. He was used of God to lead many thousands of Burmese to faith in the Lord Jesus. Fear of death drove Judson to Christ, but then the hope of the gospel, the strength and the courage that the promises of the gospel gave him later led him to have the courage to face dangers and sufferings. And this is one of the most remarkable things about Judson's uh, facing of sufferings. He faced afflictions, persecution, tortures, heartache that he did not have to. He chose the life of going to Burma and over and over again could have left at times where he saw that um, conflict was mounting against him and times that he knew imprisonment was coming and he could have fled. The hope of the gospel gave him a strength that enabled him to face persecution, pain and afflictions with boldness. He faced it with astounding resilience. Listen, it takes two hands to count the number of wives and children he buried in Burma. Judson himself endured tremendous torture at the hands of persecutors and faced his own death with strength. The young man who had icy fear in his heart later became the bold man of the gospel. How? It is the hope, it is the strength that he was given from passages like Romans 8. We are more than conquerors in Christ. For the Christian, there is nothing to fear in death, and even death itself serves us. We've mentioned in this passage that there are four main truths. I'll recount them here in just a bit. And as we study uh, to finish this section and finish the entire chapter, we're ready for the fourth of these truths. And it is because of all of these things we have seen. Because of all of the truths, the realities, the promises that we have because of what God has done in Christ for those who are in Christ, for you who are right with God because you've turned to the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. You've been made right with God for you because of all of these things. We are more than Conquerors. So this is the truth we're going to consider. We are more than conquerors. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to explain and preach this last truth, and then I'm going to spend some significant time applying it, applying it. So here is this fourth point. Because of all of these truths, we are more than conquerors. So this specific truth is found in verse 37. If you look there again, so read along and he says, but in all these 
things. Now, what, what are the all these things? It, it is critical. So, you know, I'm kind of trusting you remembering the, 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 the sermons we've had in the past year. The all these things, this passage is filled with suffering. That's one of the themes that comes through this passage again and again. The people of God endure afflictions. The people of God are going to suffer, are going to be hated. Verse 36, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all of our afflictions, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So the New American Standard that I'm reading uses the language of overwhelmingly conquer. If you've got an ESV on your lap, it says we are more than conquerors. So does the King James and the New King James. If you've got an NIV, it probably says something like, this is really cool, man. Okay, good. Better translation there. Uh, something along these lines. The, the more than conquerors, even though I love my New American Standard, that language of more than conquerors, it, it, it's a helpful translation. It's greatly useful. I don't know about you, but that sticks in my head. It's on the tip of my tongue, more than conquerors. And so um, I think that's a, a helpful way to see it. And, and let's review just very briefly so that we recall what we see here. Again and again, what we have been told is for the people of God, the blessing of God does not mean that God gives you a nice life now. The people of God endure suffering, afflictions, persecution, turmoil. I mean, look back uh, at some of those that are listed off. Verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Jump down to 38 and 39, various dangers and things that scare us are, are, or scare us in the flesh are brought up. But what we are told is in all of these things, God is carrying us through and we are overwhelmingly conquerors. But one of the things that we, we got to just make note of, I speak to Christians who happen to be Americans, who happen to live in America. We have lived in an unusual place and time in history. Our experience has not been the norm of history. I have never had someone chase me with a machete and want to kill me because I am a Christian. And that is the anomaly and not the rule. Our experience is not the definition of all of the experiences of Christians in history. By the grace of God, he has allowed us to live in a place that has had incredible prosperity and relative peace in terms of the gospel. But what that means is that you and I come to this and we have some trouble understanding the full depths of what this passage means. And we have to, in our minds, think of it from the context of the Iranian Christian, of the Chinese Christian, the Christian who lives in North Korea in the labor camp. Ours has been the anomaly and not the rule. The promises and hope of this passage is that though we suffer briefly, God is for us. Jesus was given to save us. Jesus has justified us before the throne of God in eternity. He now sits at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for us. There is no tribulation or harm or peril or sword or famine or nakedness that can harm your soul. Because of those truths, that's why the Christian is more than a conqueror. It all hinges on eternity. 
If when I say the word life, if in your brains, you're only thinking of about a hundred years, you're several trillion years too short. When we hear the word life for the Christian, we have to be thinking in terms of eternity, the trillions and trillions of years you are here. Let me give you a fraction that is too big. Okay. You are here for one ten trillionth of your eternity. And that fraction is way too big. 10 trillion years. Eternity is still young. It would be the epitome of foolishness to live so as to indulge the flesh, to try to have happiness here and spurn repentance. And then to spend 10 trillion years in hopeless despair. But what the scripture is telling us is for those who turn to Christ and we turn our back on the, on the, the, the sins of the flesh and we turn to obey him, whatever difficulties we endure, whatever sufferings, whatever afflictions, whatever insults, whatever persecutions, whatever the world viewing you as just stupid that it comes, it's all worth it. In fact, it's more than worth it. Every one of these is making our resurrection better. It is making our reward greater. And so pulling this together, verse 37, there's a reason why we save this one for the last truth, because it is in a sense, a therefore statement, a logical argument being built and a therefore statement. Here's the critical truth, the critical turn, the great therefore Christian. If you are in Christ, no one can hurt you. No one can definitively harm you. Nobody can stop you. It's not automatic that the confidence that these truths can bring is happening in our hearts to the degree that we believe them and we are secure of these things in our souls is the degree that we will sense that we cannot be stopped. But it is still an indicative truth. Christian, even when you're mopey, even when you have fear, it is the case that you are more than a conqueror. What God wants us to do, though, is to apply it so that we understand this. You are in Christ unbeatable. Now, I, I, I feel like I need to address this for a second. What I'm saying can, if you don't think about it too deeply, okay, can sound like the motivational speaker who comes into a high school. Okay. I'm saying you're unbeatable. Okay. And you might have, you know, recollections back when you heard a motivational speaker, you know, go on, you're, you're unstoppable. Okay. You know, believe in yourself and all this kind of just nonsense. No, no, no. Here's what's different about the Bible when it says it. Okay. What Romans eight is saying is a lot of you are going to be beheaded. A lot of you are going to be disemboweled. Paul wrote to people who were eaten by lions. The wolves are going to grab your neck and shred you to pieces. And still they cannot conquer you because they cannot harm your soul. This is the difference. I'm not telling you believe in yourself. Trash that junk. What God is telling you is though your throat is ripped out by lions, you are more than a conqueror. 
because they cannot touch your soul. Now, Christian, if only we can believe it, like down to the depths of our soul. You know what I'm saying? Because there's a difference when truth is in our brain versus when it is applied deeply to our hearts. And so I'm preaching an indicative objective truth here and one that says you are more than a conqueror. But let's apply it. And oh, if we could. Oh, if we could apply it to the depths of us. We would lose fear. The the plug would be pulled that would drain out the fear in our hearts. What would you do, Christian, if you were unafraid of what men could do to you? What would we do for the kingdom of Christ if we did not fear death? Oh, if we could apply this. This is why God has given us, we're so thankful God has given us um, servants of history that we can look to like Paul. Never think of, never think of these guys as supermen. They're not supermen. They're depraved sinners, just like the rest of us, saved by the blood of Christ that came to great maturity. Paul's opponents could not find a way to stop him. Every single thing that they did was turned into the multiplication of more believers in Christ. When they tortured him, he rejoiced afterwards that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name. And then he would use it as a teaching lesson and it emboldened more uh, preachers of the gospel and Christians to go and imitate him. We're 2000 years later. I still get fired up by reading about Paul's afflictions. He turned it into a lesson that multiplied gospel workers. If they left him alone, well, that didn't work out either. Then he'd travel everywhere and bring converts to Christ. If they imprisoned him, all right, we'll take some time and write letters. For 2,000 years, the letters of Christ have been saving souls. Here we are, here we are later, and we're reading a, a, a letter written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is still encouraging us 2,000 years later. And when they killed him, they only sprinkled his words with his blood. So that today, when we read Paul's letters and we think about he died for this, it strengthens us. He could not be stopped. He became unbeatable because it was not just the motto of his lips. He believed it with a death grip in his heart. To live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't know about you, but some verses and passages of the Bible that I've read just over and over again many times, sometimes when we're not careful, it kind of just becomes words and it rolls, you know what I'm saying? Without us like seriously considering it. I don't know about you, but at certain times that, that statement to live as Christ and to die as gain has become just words to me and, and I failed to apply it deeply. And so one of the things I'm hoping to do today is for us to seriously consider so that we believe this to live as Christ and to die Christian in Christ. To die is not loss. To die is not tragedy. To die is gain. And we have to know that to the depth of our heart. It is possible to believe that to die is gain in our brains, but in the depths of our heart to still see death as loss, to still see it as tragedy. 
And what has to happen is the, the, the sinking of the application to its roots so that it goes from the brain to the heart. To die is gain and our hearts regard it so but one of the most important truths in all of this is that it is to the degree that we hold this truth. It is to the degree that we believe it, we lean on it, that it makes men's intimidation unproductive. You can be a Christian who is more than a conqueror and be intimidated and timid. Timothy was, remember this? He struggled with timidity. And what did Paul tell him? A whole lot of things. God has not given us a spirit of fear and then called him to suffer with me for the sake of the gospel. We can be a Christian and struggle with timidity and fear. But do you understand this? When we're in that place, we're failing to believe Romans 8. Romans 8 is it's not connecting. It's, it's not clicking. The light bulbs it haven't come on in our heart. In Christ, you're more than a conqueror. Now, I want you to consider what this means briefly. What, what does it mean to be more than a conqueror or, or to overwhelmingly conquer? Because the text, it, it is specific. It's not just saying you're a conqueror. You are more than that. So how can you be more than a conqueror? Well, Alexander the Great was a conqueror. By the age of 33, he had defeated an army uh, in battle, every army that he faced. He had conquered every land that he knew of. History tells us that there was actually a day that he walked out onto his balcony and he looked around him and he was saddened that there were no more lands to conquer that he knew of. But then do you know what happened? He died. He died and his kingdom fell as every earthly kingdom will. He died, he entered hell, he served the flesh, he spurned repentance, he defied God, he conquered on earth, was admired on earth, but now he is in hell. And for the last about 2,300 years, he has been in agony, in the flame, of hell. And how much joy do you think his earthly conquering is giving him right now? How much happiness do you think he is drawing from how highly he climbed? 10,000 years from now, when he is still just dreaming of a drop of water for his tongue, how much do you think he will care about his earthly exploits? They mean nothing. They mean nothing. We're the Christian on the other hand, the Iranian Christian who lives hated by culture all around him and, and lives in danger, the Chinese Christian in the concentration camp, the North Korean believer in the labor camp, his life looks, her life appears, appears to the flesh to be a failure. But again, we have to see it from the perspective of eternity. Uh, a little while back, several months back, we were praying for the family of a North Korean pastor who was executed publicly before his village. His wife and children were forced to watch as he was executed. And we prayed, that North Korean believer, I want you to get him in your head. Everybody on earth, the world, 
on earth looked at him as a failure. But I want you to consider his state right now. Where is he right now? Listen, not only has he received the inheritance of heaven, which would be enough, but even right now in heaven, he is viewed with respect. He has a special admiration, a special honor that he has as being one of those who was martyred for the name of Christ. Scripture shows that there is a place of prestige, a place of honor for those who shed blood for the name of Christ. But even then, he has not received the full. On the day of judgment to come, in the age to come, he will receive even greater glory. He will be in a position of even greater honor and reward because of this, we will look at that guy and we will wish that we had been able to, to do what he did because of the glory and the reward that he will receive. The North Korean martyr wins. He wins. He gets heaven. He gets reward. The kingdom he fought for is the kingdom that wins. Alexander the Great's kingdom fell. The kingdom we labor for wins, swallows up every other kingdom and whatever ounce of affliction we endure for the sake of following Christ in this life results in greater reward and greater glory to come. We know what it is to conquer, but we in Christ are more than conquerors. What if your enemies were forced to serve you? What if every action of your enemy only blessed you, made you rich, and served you? Th this is what God has brought about. Because even when your enemy spits in your face, that's one the that scripture will mention specifically, by the way. Even when your enemy spits in your face, you are purified now. Because God is turning all difficulties into holiness now, and your reward got greater. There is, there is a badge of honor that comes for those who have endured difficulty. And listen, Christian, even death, even death is not a formidable foe to you any longer. And this is where we have to bring the great application. If you believe that persecution, pain, and affliction ultimately and definitively harm you, we'll run from it will compromise, will cower. We might think things like, surely this can't be God's will because it's hard. But if you believe that persecutions, pain and affliction bless us, increases our reward, we will not run from it. This is the foundation where we will get strength to stand for Christ. We benefit from the pain. And Christian, this is the identity we have to adopt. This is the identity that we have to adopt. If you are put in a position of testing, a position where you have to stand for Christ or there's the temptation to cower, where will you draw your strength from? Many of us might be able to muster up enough fleshly strength to stand on our own for one moment. What if you were in a position where you had to stand for Christ every day for a decade? Where would you get that kind of strength? If you don't believe Romans 8, 
You won't have it. This is the foundation from which we draw this. And so Christians see that it is an indicative truth. You are more than a conqueror in Christ, even when we don't feel like it. Even when we, our heart does have fear and timidity, even when we're mopey and timid. But the point is God wants us to know these things so that we are not mopey and timid and fearful, that we become bold. We become bold like Paul. If you know that you are more than a conqueror, you become like Paul. If you know that pain blesses you and you're more than a conqueror, what can people do to scare you? How can they intimidate you? When you see, critical turn here, when you see that death is your servant and that death is gain, then it will pull the plug on your fear of death. And if you do not fear death, what would you do for the kingdom of Christ? What risk would you take? Well, here's the second part. I want to spend some time now applying this. We've made the point throughout our passage that it's a major Christian principle. I've even asked you to write this one down. This is just one of the big uh, uh, ramifications of the text. Christian, you must be prepared to suffer. You must be prepared to endure afflictions. And this passage is meant to embolden us so that we are ready. Now we take it, now we take it further. And we take it to the place that this text means for us to go. So here is the next statement, these big statements that I will make. And again, I ask you to write it down. Christian, you must be prepared to die. You must be prepared to die And this passage is meant to give you what you need so that you are ready to die well. Because here's the reality. We all want Jesus to return like now. We all want him to return and to deliver us out of this. We do not know when he will come. We're told to get ready for death. We're actually told we're going to live as fools until we do. Psalm 90. We're told to prepare for death. You're going to die. You're going to die. However it is for you, it may be that the day comes your, your hands get clammy. Your breathing grows shallow. You groan and gasp in pain. Something is going to happen. You're going to die. It's not guaranteed, though, that we will die well. It's not guaranteed that we will face death with the courage and the hope that God wants us to. Hebrews 2, 14, listen up. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, speaking of Jesus, partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And then now listen to this part. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. God says he wants to free us from our fear of death. These truths are meant to strengthen us so that we are equipped, so that we are ready to die well. Christian, part of the purifying and strengthening that he wants to do in you is to get you ready for death. Now, it might be that as I say this, you have no 
fear of death as I'm talking about this, but I, I want to pause on this. I'm, 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 going, I'm going to hang on to this one for a little bit. Just because you have no fear of death does not necessarily mean that you have the right kind of courage based on the foundation of these truths. It may be. I hope a whole lot of us in the church have, but it's not necessarily because very often fearlessness exists in hearts of those who have never considered death in truth, who have never brought the subject close, who have never really considered their own mortality. See, it's one of the realities of living in our land of prosperity. We've separated ourselves from death. We're pretty unfamiliar with it as a whole. You, you, I mean, there would be individuals, of course, who more than others, but as a whole, we send our dying ones off for someone else to take care of. I want you to understand, I'm not necessarily calling this evil. I intend to use some of these services at, at some point. So don't misunderstand what I am saying as though it were evil to do all of these things. But we do need to know that there are some unintended consequences. When our loved ones die, instead of the days where the funeral and the visitation would be held in your own home, the body would be laid out on the table in your parlor, in your house. The body would stay there overnight. And friends and family would come to your house and they would visit and you handled the body of your loved one. We're very unfamiliar with that. The majority of Americans have never one time in their life held someone when they breathe their last. Previous generations, this was regular life. They were used to this. We're very unfamiliar with death. When I went to Jim Hickey's funeral, Logan's dad, not too long ago after the graveside service was over, TJ and Holly and I, we took a little stroll through the cemetery there. And it's a sobering thing. And one of the things that we, we noted were just how many children were buried. In previous generations, it was very common for children to die. It was almost expected that if you have a handful of children, at least one of them is going to die. We, we watch movies where hundreds die and we may even make jokes while it is happening. We've become very separated from death. And so the point that I'm trying to make is when we talk about this subject, it may be that you have no fear in your heart right now, but it, it might be that it's because you've never felt it's cold breath. It just seems so far away. It's possible to have a Peter-like bravado about death. You remember whenever Peter said, all these other guys, they may fall away, but I never will. I am willing to die for you. And that very night, he betrayed Jesus three times. Listen, Peter was not intentionally lying. He thought he was ready. And it's possible for you and I to be in the same kind of place. You need to bring the subject of death close and prepare. Many of you know that a year ago, our family had a frightening ordeal go down. In strange providence, it was a year ago this very week. Um, and and I, I don't bring this up to try to get dramatic effect. Please understand that. Um, I think it will help us think through death. In the middle of the night, my wife had something happen. We still don't know what 
We've visited million dollar a year salary experts who can give no answers to what it is that happened. She thought she was having a heart attack, ended up passing out and having some seizures. Something was happening in her body that we still don't know how dangerous it was. Some of the experts we visited thought that it was nearly mortal. Others, not so much. We still don't know. But my wife believed that she was dying and she had to process this. There came a moment when I was on the phone with 911 that after her having a seizure, she went limp and stopped breathing. And I thought she did die. She was taken by ambulance to the emergency room because of COVID. I was not allowed in the hospital at all, had to sit out in the parking lot. And so my wife was inside laying alone, believing that she was dying and she had to come to acceptance. She had to process. She committed herself to the Lord and prayed that God would take care of her girls. I'm out in the parking lot processing her death. And I'm thinking those hundreds of thoughts like, how am I going to tell little Ruby? Working through all of these things. After we came home from the ER, now thank God she has been okay. We came home from the ER for the next about three days. We were just not okay. Any mention of what happened just caused me to break down. We were terribly shaken by it. And over the next days, as we talked about it, there, there's one subject that we've come to numerous times. We both said to each other, I'm surprised by how much this affected me. I thought I was more prepared for this. We both said that same thing. I thought I was more ready for this kind of thing. And here's one of the things that we realized. We had thought and talked a great deal about death. But I think that there's a sense that it had always been kind of theoretical. That it had always seemed so far away that it just stayed in the brain and had not been committed to the heart. We thought about death. We're Christians. We do Bible studies on death. We talk about death so much that one of our girls actually calls us morbid once in a while. We've talked about where we'll be buried and what'll happen. Um, sorry, I just looked at my family. That wasn't good. <laughs> We talked about what'll happen if we ever die and where the girls will go. We, we had conversations about dying for Jesus and what, what if someone puts a gun to your head and says to deny Christ. We had those conversations, but I think that there was still a way that it was up here and just theoretical. And there's a major difference. There's a major difference between knowing truths in the brain and then applying it deeply to the heart. There's a difference between loving your enemies and knowing that you're supposed to love your enemies. And there's a difference between knowing that death is gain up here and knowing that death is gain down to the bottom of our souls. Christian, you are more than a conqueror over death. But that doesn't necessarily mean that this is what we experience in our hearts. And so every day we are to be making progress in our thinking making progress in our thinking so that we regard death rightly so that we think like Jesus. Jesus in John 17 prayed. He says, I am leaving the world and father, I come to you. Christian, every day we are to conform our thinking so that more and more we think like Jesus. Death is not passing into the great darkness. 
Death is not getting lost in the woods or drowned at sea as though in some spiritual ethereal state. We're just stumbling around. Death is coming home to the father. Death is God bringing you to your inheritance, your rest. The testimony of scripture in church history shows us that the gospel frees people from the terror of death. And for some, it frees them entirely from the fear of death. I want to camp on that one for a bit. What I said is the gospel frees us from the terrors of death and it can free us entirely from the fear of death. And here's the distinction that I mean. I tell stories pretty often about missionaries and believers who died fearlessly and I'll continue to do so because it's a major truth to show what the hope of the gospel can do. But it is also that the case that a great many Christians, and I think we could say most Christians who have died as martyrs for their faith, they didn't die fearlessly, but they did die courageously. And here's the difference. Courage is not the complete absence of fear. That's why we have a word for it, fearless. Some did. But many have died courageously in that they had to work hard to get their courage stirred up. Sometime read the account of the five martyrs of lions uh, during the French Revolution, L-Y-O-N-S. John Calvin uh, ministered to these men to get their courage ready because they were struggling with it. They were struggling with uh, having their, their hearts in the right kind of place. And so he ministered to help them in that. When uh, in England, uh, many of the Protestant believers were killed by Bloody Mary, that Catholic queen who, who murdered Christians for reading their Bibles in English, they had to encourage one another as they were walking to be tied to the stake and burned alive. There are phrases that they would repeat to one another like, play the man, Master Ridley. And what they meant was, I know you're scared, but let's face this with courage. Let's believe the hope of the gospel. And it took work to stir the courage. If you will do the work of application, the gospel will free you from the terror of death in your heart and it will build your courage. Throughout history, believers have borne witness to this in the hour of their death. Paul said as he awaited death, he wrote his last letter in the imprisonment where he then was later beheaded. He said, the Lord stood by me. What that means is not just theoretical. He's saying, I sense his presence. He's with me. I'm not alone. John Wesley from his deathbed said, the best part is that God is with us. Sir William Forbes said from his deathbed, tell all the people who are coming down to the bed of death, from my experience, it has no terrors. Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. David Livingston was a missionary in Africa and he was attacked by a lion at one point. It grabbed onto him and shook him in his own words as a terrier shakes a rat. He lived through the attack and later he said that when it happened, when the lion grabbed me, he said he passed into a stupor and felt no pain. He said he thought it was a grace that God gives his people in the hour of death. D.L. Moody on the day of his death earlier in the day said, this is my triumph. This is my coronation day. 
I have been looking forward to it for years. And then later, as he was drawing nearer to death in his final breaths, he had been a, a bit out of it, but he brightened up towards the end and he said, I see the children's faces. He was referring to the faces of his grandchildren who had died before him in childhood. And then he got real serious and he said, the world recedes, heaven opens before me. His son thought he might be dreaming or just delusional, but he said, he got real clear and he said, no, this is no dream, Will. It is beautiful. If this is death, it is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. I cannot promise you that your passing will be as sweet as D.L. Moody's. Yours might have more pain and more difficulty, but I can with assurance say three things. Number one, God will be with you. You will not face it alone. Number two, the greater your faith and the more you have prepared your soul, the better it will be, the more courage and even joy as some of these believers had. And number three, you will immediately open your eyes in glory. In Luke 16, there's the account of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and immediately opens his eyes in hell where he cries out for a drop of water. He spurned repentance. He ended up in hell. And I want to take the opportunity here to say this. If you have not turned to the Lord Jesus to be saved, I have no intention of giving you comfort. I'm not trying to be cruel, but I am trying to awaken terror in you that you should have because you are in danger that words cannot adequately describe of the hopeless torment that is awaiting you if you are not safe in the Lord Jesus. Turn to him to be saved. But Lazarus, the poor man, closed his eyes in death and opened his eyes. And I love how the text says he was carried away to paradise by the angels. In other words, there's no delay when a believer closes their eyes in death, you don't pass into some expanse of darkness. You're not lost somewhere. You open your eyes to the embrace of angels and immediately are brought to paradise. To live is Christ and to die is gain, Christian. It's gain, it's gain, it's only gain. It is gain to leave the world of anxiety, the world of the curse, the world of death. We get it backwards. We so often think this is the land of the living and that's the land of death. We have it completely backwards. This is the world of the curse. This is the world of affliction and pain. That is your home. That's why the Bible calls when a Christian passes, sleep. It's sleep. The body has gone to sleep and you will have a glorified body again. Death is not passing into the darkness. Death is gain. We come to the father. We go home. Listen, Christian, this is why we have met for worship while the world has lived in fear. This is why we have been willing. We have not feared to meet together for worship while the world has just lived in terror. We've met together. Listen, it's not that we don't think there's a virus. We recognize there's risk and there is danger. We conclude that it is worth it. 
because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I want you to hear this, Christian. Never before in our lifetimes has such an opportunity existed to show the world the hope of the gospel that for the Christian, there's nothing to fear in death. We will come to some different conclusions when it comes to the amount of danger and reasonable precautions. And there's a lot of latitude in that. But Christian, don't live in fear. Show the world to live as Christ and to die is gain. But to do that, we must prepare. To do that, we must prepare. Psalm 90 even says, you're never going to be wise. You're going to live as a fool until you comprehend the brevity of your days. So part of the great application that I'm calling you to, calling us to, is to do some things after we leave here. Yeah, by all means, let's do work now, but it's to do some things after we leave here. There's preparation work we need to do. Take some long walks and ask God to help you rightly think about death. Have some long conversations with your loved ones about death. Read some books by dead guys. Read the Puritans who lived with death in their life all the time. Read sermons from believers who have faced turmoil in the past. Read read, uh, the King's Ferry over the river. And if you have never turned to Christ to be saved, you need to hear Hebrews says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I beg you to read Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, and I beg you to consider what happened to the rich man and what it is he wanted. His first request was for a drop of water. There is no smaller act of grace that could have been given than a drop of water for his tongue. And even that was denied because when you are in hell, the day of the opportunity of grace is gone. But what was his second request? Do you remember it? He begged, send someone to my family and tell them that hell is real and to repent so that they do not also come to this place of torment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cry out to him and pray that he would save you. The invitation is open. If any of you want to speak with me, find me before you leave. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask, O oh God, that you will help us to do what we have considered here. Help us to truly come to grips with our mortality. Help us, O oh God, to believe down to the depths of us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us, God. And I pray for any in the room that is not yet born again. Please turn on the light bulbs and draw them to you, O oh God. Please give us your blessing as we leave. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.com dot org.